0: Hi folks, in just a moment we're gonna read from Psalm 22 as we conclude our uh, series in the Psalms together, but I wanna share a little bit about where we're headed next. Uh, Where we're headed next is of course into the season of Advent and towards Christmas. We'll be in a series called The Christmas Carols where we look at Christmas carols, their scriptural roots, and uh, how they direct us towards Jesus. So next week, Kirsten will be sharing our first Christmas carol, which is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. But as I said, this week, we're concluding our series in the Psalms. Rick Watts is going to be teaching. He and Katie are members of our church. And Rick has a long background in a whole bunch of things, but one of them is biblical scholarship. So we're interested in hearing from him. And this is the reading today that we'll hear in the teaching from Rick in Psalm 22. Let me read it for us. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and were saved. They trusted in you and were never disgraced. But I am a worm, not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads saying, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him. If the Lord loves him so much, let the Lord rescue him. Yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb and led me to trust you at my mother's breast. I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord, all you who fear him, honor him and all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel for he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. He has not turned his back on them, but has listened to their cries for help. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him, all who are mortal, all whose lives will end as dust. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord, His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything He has done."
1: Hello. If we've not met, my name is Rick, and I'm on the teaching team at Living Waters. Today we're concluding our short series on the Psalms. As you know, there are 150 of them, so why choose to end with Psalm 22? Well, first, no other psalm matches its final and extraordinary heights of indication and praise. Second, it also plumbs remarkable depths of suffering, personal attack, and worse, apparent abandonment by God Himself. No other psalm combines such bleak depths and staggering heights. Third, it's also the psalm with which Jesus Himself ends. And if not quoted by Paul, it aptly describes the arc of his life. Finally, if Psalm 22 is the experience of David, of Jesus and of Paul, then perhaps we ought not be surprised if we also find it ours. As you know, the Psalms belong to Israel's wisdom literature. There is much to learn here. If you have your Bibles, you might want to get them out now. We'll be working pretty closely with the text. Similar to the Torah, Psalms also consist of five books. Psalm 22 comes from the first, Psalms 1 through 41, which deals particularly with David. David is, of course, Israel's paradigmatic king chosen by Yahweh himself. For all his failings, God nevertheless described him as a man after God's own heart. This might explain why Psalm 1 starkly contrasts the righteous person who flourishes with the wicked one who perishes and is blown away like chaff. Regardless of David's rank, he too must choose to fear the Lord and delight in his law by meditating on it day and night. Neglect this and David could never live up to the calling of Psalm 2, being set over Zion, God's holy hill. Perhaps a word to the wise, if you're looking for a Psalm 2 leader over God's house, make sure, like Psalm 1, they are saturated in Scripture. Now, as I'm sure you know, poems don't just happen. One of my favourite poets is Gerard Manley Hopkins. Everyone, so I'm told, goes through a Hopkins phase. It's nice to be so predictable. But there's nothing random nor simple about his poems, and nor is there about the Psalms. Katie and I once had a very intelligent tricolour corgi. He loved his bone. He'd fling it, stalk it, pounce on it, and gnaw it for hours. As Eugene Peterson once said, so too the Psalms. They need to be chewed on, gnawed at, and growled over again and again. Whatever you do, don't speed read the Psalms. Psalm 22 consists of three genres. Nearly two-thirds is a lament, all the way up to verse 22, which also includes two but very brief prayers. All this is followed, as we've said, by praise and thanksgiving in verses 23 to 31. It begins with a heart-wrenching cry of being forsaken by God and by his fellow humans. That's verses 1 through 10. And this is followed by a short prayer for help In verse 11, David then describes to God his desperate troubles both outward, he is surrounded by terrifying enemies, and inward, his own body is failing him. Verses 12 through 18. He is so far gone that his enemies are already dividing even his clothes. It also finishes with just a slightly longer prayer in verses 19 to 21a. And then, completely out of the blue, comes an astonishing reversal. God has now answered. This leads to a thanksgiving first by the sufferer, verses 22 to 26, and then the congregation, verses 27 to 31, which extends to all Israel, the nations, and even to those as yet unborn. Now, don't worry if you didn't get all that. It's pretty straightforward and you can listen again. What we haven't included is the title. Unfortunately, it's omitted by some English translations, but the Hebrew canonical text has them for 116 psalms, so we can't probably ignore it here. But what does to the deer of the dawn mean? It might be a tune, or it might be to conjure the image of a defenseless deer having made it through the terrors of the night now standing on a mountaintop against the edge of dawn. We don't actually know, but you know, that's okay. Given Psalm 22's silence on why David suffers, perhaps it's well to begin with a reminder that there are some things in Scripture we do not yet understand, and apparently that's just fine by God. The opening pair of lines describe the heart of David's terrible and confounding situation. He feels that God has abandoned him. Whatever else, God's presence is the key. Now, we can't do this with every verse, but it's good to look at how these lines work. You can then do something similar for yourselves with the rest of the material. Even in his suffering, where does David begin? My God, my God. That's twice, and it's emphatic. It's also repeated in the second line. In other words, This is not an, oh God, if you are real, please show me and I will serve you forever. That's fine, of course, and I know people who first met God this way. But this is different. This is about a long-term and intimate relationship, one that's foundational to David's identity. Apparently, even someone with a deep and abiding relationship with God can experience God's apparent absence. David continues with a three-part question, seeking an explanation. Why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from delivering me? And why are you so far from my anguished groaning? Notice how each line increases the intensity. It's not just abandonment. You're a million miles away from delivering you. That's real distance and at a crucial time. And all this in spite of my anguished groaning. And notice, too, the change in tense. The past tense of have forsaken is intensified into the present. You are so far away, even now. In repeating the opening, my God, the second line keeps the tension front and centre. Reminding God of David's long prior faithfulness, it then expands on the previous groaning through three contrasting pairs, day and night, I've done my part, I've not ceased crying out to you. The second, you and I, and in that order, it emphasises God's accountability, which is distilled to its essence in the third pair, answer and rest. Whatever else, the one thing David needs is an answer. In just a few lines, the tension has been ramped up unbearably. There's nothing more terrible and God's silence in the midst of inescapable and exhausting suffering. What's staggering is that God never answers David's question. The easy answer, David must have sinned, simply won't work. If he had, we'd expect confession and repentance, such as we find in Psalms 32, 38 or 51. But there's not a hint anywhere that David has done anything wrong. And Jesus, who quotes Psalm 22, certainly hadn't. Perhaps then, Psalm 22 is less about God's giving a reason, about the why of his apparent silence, than David's and our response. And that, to be honest, is never easy to handle. Some of us here know exactly what we're talking about. I do, and more than once, That's what makes this morning's talk so difficult. I'm very aware that a short and at points technical discussion runs the risk of clinical depersonalising. Please be assured that this is not my intention. It's precisely because of the unspeakable pain of suffering in the face of God's silence that we need to attend so carefully to Psalm 22. So notice, then, where David goes next in verse 3. Yet, in spite of all of this, you are holy. Hmm. What's going on here? I suspect that David realises that suffering can be so overwhelming and all-consuming that there's a very real danger of it becoming our identity. Even more so in a world of identity politics. Emphasising God's holiness pulls us up short. As terribly present as suffering can be, it is not what a holy God intends. He alone is perfect in all his ways. He alone is to be exalted. He alone the centre of all things. David has to choose. And he already knows from Psalm 1 there's only one choice that will lead to flourishing. God's holiness is the one and only anchor that will keep his soul. Now, if you know Israel's story, David's combination of feeling forsaken, of needing deliverance, of crying out, and of God's holiness comes from, from but one place, the exodus, the great defining moment in Israel's history, where God revealed his name his power, and his compassionate mercy. And this is exactly where David goes next. And here too, David consciously dissenters himself. This isn't about him in splendid isolation. He stands in a story. And in that story, it is God who is enthroned, either on the praises of Israel or who is the praise of Israel. Either way, God stands at the centre. There would be. No Israel without him. It's because of the I am that Israel can become. For David to deny this would be to deny his very self. And After all, it was this God in Psalm 2 who appointed him. That's important for us too, it seems to me. This is not about myself. There's a bigger thing that's already going on. It doesn't start with me. It began somewhere else, and I'm a part of that. And from this long experience, David knows that the right response to a holy God, especially in suffering and apparent abandonment, is to trust. It's so important it gets mentioned twice. Now, notice crucially that the right response is not to understand. That's not what the fathers did. And that might explain why God does not answer David's why. The Western Greek tradition desperately sought to understand. But come on, really? Who among us can pretend to understand life, let alone in the midst of such lonely suffering? David's only hope is to trust God, and hence, again, the emphatic positioning of the prepositional phrases. Yet you are holy. In you, they trusted. To you, they cried. And again, in you they trusted. That's now three trusteds. However, this does not mean that David launches into a faith confession. Unbelieving, no negative confessions, no problem, it's all fine. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. It's precisely because a holy God is trustworthy that David and we can cry out and groan in anguish to him. That's exactly what happened at the Exodus. They cried out in their groaning and God heard and God saved and they were not put to shame. The reference to shame, it's unexpected. But that's exactly what Israel's long slavery was about. Degrading, dehumanising, crushing. Exactly the opposite of what David wrote about in Psalm 8 where humans, all of us, were to be crowned with glory and honour. Our First Nations are well acquainted with this experience of shame, as indeed with some of us, whether in addiction, being caught out or failure. I watched my mother die of cancer. It too was long, dehumanising and degrading. Someone described it as a filthy disease. That would certainly fit my experience, but that's not what a holy God originally intended for anyone. And how do I know that? Not just because of the Exodus, but because of Jesus. If anything characterised him, it was that he healed all who came to him. David, having realigned his compass on this foundational past, then cries out to a holy God exactly as they did and he does so at length and nothing stinting you see trusting a holy god is not at all about ignoring my pain on the contrary it's precisely because pain shame and abandonment are so powerful that they must be handled carefully for david there is all the difference in the world between his pain being all about him and bringing his pain transparently even graphically a holy God. The first, being all about him, is essentially idolatry. The second is an act of genuine worship. And as you can see, nothing is held back. Just like his forebears were initially shamed, so now David. He is a worm. Now nothing against worms. My good wife loves gardens. But here they're associated with decay, death and decomposition. And why the contrasting, not a human? Because as David knows again from Psalm 8, his current condition is not what God intended for us. Now this mention of human leads him into his next complaint. While God might be absent and silent, the humans around him are anything but either. They are all too present and all too mouthy. They scorn, despise, mock, curl their lips, sneer, and shake their heads. The extended list makes its own point, finishing with a notably perverse viciousness. They take the language of encouragement and twist it into a humiliating cheer. Even worse, this is the first time the name Yahweh, the Lord, actually appears in the psalm. And it's in the mouth of these inhuman thugs. Lord. Yahweh is the name especially associated with the Exodus. Uniquely revealed to Israel, God's son, in whom he delighted. As such, it also recalls God's promise to David in Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is not just putting the knife in while someone's down. This is twisting it too. So, the Lord delights in you, eh? Right, so commit yourself to him and he will deliver as if. Now it's important to see that this is not an attack on Yahweh but on David. If God delights in you, why are you suffering? Implication He doesn't and he won't deliver you. What these folks do not understand is that bad things do happen to good people and terrible things to genuinely godly ones. They think we need to earn the Lord's mercy and compassion. But if they'd listened to the Exodus, they would know that that's not the case at all. A holy God shows compassion because that's who he is. That's what the Exodus taught them. And that's why he is the praise of Israel. Notice then that David doesn't even bother to respond to his mockers. And can I suggest, neither should we. What matters is not their opinion, but God's. So in verses 9 through 10, God speaks directly to God. Now, the image of birth is perhaps a bit jarring for us. I mean, this is Sunday morning and it's a mixed audience after all. But their world was earthier. They'd seen the baby emerge from between its mother's legs and then be placed helpless upon her belly. I shamelessly wept when I experienced this for myself. There's something overwhelming about that moment. And David understands that it cannot be reduced to mere nature. Behind the gift of birth stands the creator of all. Whatever David's faults, and they are of no importance in this psalm, he can say to God, from birth, I've always been entirely dependent upon you. From the very first, you've always been my God. And so at the end of this first unit, he offers his first short prayer, do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. The critical thing, as we saw in the opening stanzas, is again God's presence. It's the heart of the Exodus. And so Moses, when God offers the lamb but refuses to go up with Israel, refuses. If your presence does not go up with us, please do not send us from here. No presence, no deal. There is no substitute for the presence of God. No finely worded sermons, not wonderful music, not buildings, or even good coffee. There is only one who can help. And oh boy, does David need that. We'll move a little more quickly here, but the next 10 verses, beginning with 12 all the way up through 18, employ a range of metaphors that focus on two things the external and the internal the two extremes of his viciously terrifying enemies, and his exhausted and utterly washed-out body. Now, I grant we don't tend to think in terms of bulls, lions and dogs, but they were fearful parts of their world. There are carvings of writhing people caught in the jaws of lions. Perhaps then it might help us to think of the movie of the same name. Or an attack by a huge male brown bear. Even today, some of us feel the hair rise on the back of our necks when we have to walk too close to a powerfully built and unfriendly-eyed rottweiler or pitbull. If you want to sense the emotion, imagine what it must be like to be in a North Korean prison, or being held on bare subsistence and seriously ill by the former Islamic State. David's body is so far gone that his enemies, in anticipation of his soon demise, are already dividing among themselves even his very clothes – his last shred of dignity is in the process of being taken from him. And inwardly, he's nothing left. Think of lying completely motionless on your bed with a debilitating migraine where even the slightest chink of light or movement risks shooting agony, or the daily stomach-churning cycle of chemotherapy and its never-ending unwellness. All David can do is offer a slightly longer prayer, summarising what's gone before. Notice, as far as prayers go, it's hardly the most memorable. Frankly, it's not that much at all. But then maybe that's the point. The prayer's efficacy is not determined by its length or impressive rhetoric, or even David, the prayer's own majesty. How could it be? That's already in tatters. The prayer's power resides not in itself, but in the one to whom it is directed, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Turning his enemy's jeer on its head, David, for the first time, himself invokes the name Yahweh. Yahweh the great covenant name of the Exodus, the I am who I am, the one who will be present in whatsoever form he chooses to be present. Why this change? We're not told. But given its context, I wonder if it's partly the result of David's being completely upfront with God. He's not trying to be spiritual or strong. Nor does he do this arrogantly or as if he's God's equal, but as a genuinely dependent son. I do wonder if his being transparently honest is, in itself, an extraordinary act of trust. What if David came to realise that in spite of how he felt, God had never really been absent at all? However that might be, In verse 21, and without any account of what transpired, everything is suddenly turned around. From the horns of the wild ox, you have answered me. Now, if you're following along, some of your translations, for example, the NRSV will have rescued. And it makes more sense. One gets rescued from horns, not answered. But the fact remains that the Hebrew has answered and answering was the issue right back at the beginning in verse 2. Why does the difference even matter? Well, if David has already been rescued, then he's giving thanks for a deliverance that's already happened. But if answered, this is more a matter of trust. He now knows, regardless of how he feels, that since God has answered, his deliverance is assured. Commentators have long remarked on the absence of any particular answer, but I wonder if that too is intentional. The only content we have is David's shift of focus from himself, his recalling the exodus, and his subsequent trusting imitation of his father's experience. What if his acting on who a holy God really is was part of God's answer? And just like the exodus, it might not mean immediate deliverance, but deliverance will surely come. Well, this leads finally in verses 22 to 31 into a cascade of ever-widening circles of praise. Given the psalm's beginning, we're not surprised that he first addresses God. I will tell of your name, he says. And what is that name if not the Lord, Yahweh, the I am? I will praise you. You have answered me. And do note now how often the Lord appears in these remaining verses with all of its wonderful connotations. The circle then expands in verses 23 to 24 to include all of Jacob and all of Israel. Whereas humans despised and abhorred him, Yahweh did not, and neither, good friends, will he despise you no matter how others might have treated you. David can now pay his vows. I don't think this is about his having made a deal with God. Do this and I vow such and such. Instead, he can now fulfill his obligations by giving God what was already rightfully his. Now, the Hebrew here is in places very difficult. But on this translation, the marginal, the dispossessed, the poor, they get to eat their fill. Please don't miss this. A satisfying meal in the Lord's presence is the pinnacle of worship. And that's why there'll be a marriage supper of the Lamb. The Lord Jesus. Don't over spiritualize your Christian life. We are emphatically not disembodied souls. And as they eat before the Lord, they lift their glasses. May your hearts live forever. It's the ancient version of Achim to life. As John's gospel well understands, it's always been about life and life eternal. And the circle expands even further. All the families of the nations will worship him. Recall Greg's story last night, last week. Psalm 68, he has set me in a family, all of them eating in God's presence and lifting their glasses. And how so? Because as the creator, the one behind every birth, every beginning of a human life, all dominion belongs to the Lord. And still we are not done. Even the dead will bow down. Future generations will be told, and they too will proclaim the Lord's deliverance to those who are yet to be born. And the proclamation, it's stunningly simple. He has done it. It's that basic. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Hopefully we can now see why this psalm is without peer. What an extraordinary reversal. It's hardly surprising then that Psalm 22 is followed by the justly famous Psalm 23. David's, The Lord is my shepherd, is no cheap confession. It was hard won through even the shadow of the valley of death. David knew what it was to have a table prepared even in the presence of his enemies. Now, I'm sure some of you have been thinking, hang on, this sounds a lot like Jesus. And yes, the Gospel writers seem well aware of the similarities and want us to see them. Some might even think that Psalm 22 is a prophecy of the Messiah. Unfortunately, it's never quite cited as such, but to the extent that the Lord never changes and that Jesus, as David's messianic son, might also expect to endure what David did, There's clearly a connection that goes beyond mere similarity. And it's particularly striking that Psalm 22's opening lines come at the climactic end of Jesus' life. What Jesus intended is hotly debated. The skies have been black for three hours. He appears abandoned and in excruciating agony as he drinks the cup of God's wrath. For some, the Father even turns his face away and we see the awful cost of our self-centred rebellion against God's holiness—a searing rend in the eternal fellowship of the Trinity. None of this should be downplayed, even if some of the language is not itself in Scripture. At the same time, Jesus has many times predicted this moment, and always in confident declaration of his resurrection. God knows that Jesus' innocent death is an act of unparalleled obedience. And the one scriptural parallel in Amos chapter 9 describes the darkness of God's judgment as like his mourning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. Regardless of what it might look like, I'm not sure that God did in fact turn his face away. What's fascinating is one onlooker's response to Jesus' cry. Crucified beneath the king of the Jews and mocked by bystanders for the very same, this bystander hears Jesus' appeal to Psalm 22 as a request for the very same deliverance. And in their day, Elijah was the agent of that salvation. What if Jesus wants us to know that in spite of how it looks, his messianic death is the ultimate expression of David's trust in Psalm 22. Unlike David, Jesus actually dies. But it's not the cross that kills him. Pilate is himself staggered to hear of Jesus' sudden death. No, no. It's Jesus who gives up his life. And immediately a Roman, one of the nations, proclaims, this surely was the Son of God. And as we all know, that's not the end of the story. There is the resurrection. And Jesus' vindication from death is now proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And generations of whom David could not have dreamed now celebrate. He has done it. And that, dear friends, is us. We too are in this psalm. As Dave noted last week, look to Jesus, the author of And the finisher of our trust. Paul understands this so deeply that it shapes his life. In Corinthians, he's having to confront a view of spirituality that that owes more to idolatrous wisdom than to God Himself. Just like Jesus, although appearing weak, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, Paul is neither crushed, despairing, forsaken, nor destroyed. And why? Because his being given over to death is solely so that the life of Jesus can be clearly seen. And all this to the glory of a holy God and in the sure and certain hope of the vindicatory life of the world to come. We'll conclude today with a song based on Second Corinthians 4. If you'd like to affirm what you've heard today, then don't be shy to raise your arms in surrender or salute and even to stand dear friends don't think it's strange that this also happens to us those who tell you that if you have enough enough faith and are sinless all will be riches riches and seamless health they are wrong if it happened to david to jesus and to paul there's no reason that it cannot happen to us And we, like Jesus and Paul, may well see death, but there is another side to that valley. Yes, in this world we will have trouble, but be of good cheer. Our Lord has overcome the world. Grace and peace to you.